The scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Judges, chapter 19. Judges, chapter 19, first 15 verses. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem and Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he, became, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he rose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Let's go to the Lord and ask him for help this morning. Father, I'm so glad that we just sang that song, It Is Well With My Soul. It feels so well with my soul today, Lord. And the reason it's well with us if we believe in you, Lord Jesus Christ, is because you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The reason it is well is because you are the foundation and the rock of this life and nothing can shake us. No circumstances, no health problems, no financial problems, no nothing can ultimately shake the person who is rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, but all these little whispers of the wind will one day pass away and the glory of Christ will shine bright in us and through us and for us forever and ever and ever. This is just the reality that we live by one day. The trump is going to sound and the Lord will descend and he will call us home and therefore it is well with our soul. Everything is put in perspective just like that immediately and I pray that you'd grip us, Lord, with the reality of your presence and the reality of your coming. I pray that your promises would be 
real to us and precious to us and satisfying to us and hope-giving to us and foundational for us, relaxing to us, peace-giving to us. Lord, I pray that you'd make these things live for us today, and I thank you for what you will do. Lord, the word for today is a hard word. It's going to be a difficult story to think about. It'll be a difficult story to preach. The tip of the spear of the word of God has got to penetrate into our hearts today. And to some extent, it won't be fun, but I pray that you'd give us hearts to receive it, because if we will, it will be good. Lord, my heart all week long has been wanting to kind of push this word a little bit out from my heart, and I pray for grace now that we would receive it, because Lord, again, I know that if we will receive it, it will be good. So come now, Lord, and do your work in us and through us by your spirit and through your word. I surrender myself to you. We all surrender our hearts to you and ask you to come now and speak and teach us in Jesus' mighty name and for his glory. Amen. I mentioned to you last week that the last five chapters of the book of Judges tell us two stories that illustrate for us how far Israel had fallen away from the Lord. And they illustrate for us that Israel did that in one of two ways. There are probably variations of this, but there are basically two major ways in which Israel fell away. And these stories are designed to help us see that. And not just to see it, but also to feel it, to taste it, to touch it, and to feel something of the the depth of depravity and the difficulty and the disgust that was in the heart of God about what was happening among his people. So just know that these stories play a vital function in the book. They're not just appendages. They're vitally there to help us understand what was really happening in Israel and maybe in our own lives. Last week we saw the story of Micah and the Levite and the tribe of Dan. And we saw displayed there the, the, a warning away from what I called sanctified idolatry last week. And what I meant by that is the temptation to worship idols in the name of the Lord. It's the temptation that I think we all face to do things in our own way and in our own time and for our own pleasure, but to slap the name of Jesus over it as a means of trying to justify what we're doing. It, it is idolatry, but we try to sanctify it with the name of God, but it's blasphemous. And the Bible was trying to tell us last week that Israel was full of this kind of stuff. People were compromising left and right, but the name of Yahweh for them, for us, it would be the name of Jesus, just plastered everywhere so things seemed to be fine. But from God's point of view, they were anything but fine. I think this is an ever-present danger for us. I spent a day and a half in Grand Rapids, Michigan this, this week. It used to be the sort of the mecca, if you will, of, of reformed theology, a real light for the world, and now it's just unbelievable what's happening in the churches of that city. It's unbelievable. Maybe some other day I'll tell you about it, but oh, how far the mighty have fallen because one piece at a time they compromised and, and eventually just walked away from the word of God and these historic reformed denominations that really shaped the face of America are now ordaining homosexuals, ordaining homosexuals as pastors. So these temptations are ours, beloved. They're not just about those people at that time. Today we're going to see a different kind of story, a very different kind of story, a shocking story. In some ways, a a devastating story, a disgusting story. It's a revulsing revulsing kind of story. It's going to make us want to go, ew, not that, get that away from me. And it's the story of some people, not many people and not all the people, but some of the people in Israel who just completely forsook the Lord 
completely walked away from his word, completely walked away from his name, rejected him and everything that had to do with him, and just lived life any way they wanted to live life, took life for whatever they wanted to take out of life. Thank you very much. No matter who had to pay the price, no matter what that did to the name of God and to his glory. So if you look there at the beginning of chapter 19, you'll see that it begins with words that are probably familiar to us by now. In those days, there was no king in the, among the people of Israel. And you can hear the refrain from earlier in the book that says, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. I think the author wants us to hear that refrain. In those days, there was no leader in Israel. There was nobody pointing to the Lord. And God himself, who wanted to be the king of Israel, was not functioning in that role because his people had turned away from him. He did not turn away from them, but they turned away from him. And so now, without a Lord or without a leader, people were pretty much doing whatever they wanted all across Israel, from the north to the south, from the east and to the west. Many of them, as I said, were plastering the name of God over their blasphemy. Others were not. But one way or the other, Israel was in chaos. There was no king, and people were just doing what was right in their own eyes. This is the third time that the author has repeated this. He's going to say it one more time at the very end of his book. And I think one of the signals that he's trying to send to us is he wants us to understand, listen, people, the, the word of God is relating some stories to, here, to us here. But the spirit of God is not condoning what's happening in these stories. Don't think that this stuff is okay with God. Don't think that this stuff is not repulsing to God. It is repulsing to God. And whatever kind of disgust and revulsion that we feel is just the smallest glimpse of what God feels. This is why he handed his people over to other peoples and let them conquer him. He wasn't just flying off the handle for little things, right? It's not as though God said, oh, your hair's a little bit out of place. You weren't wearing the right robe. You didn't comb your hair right or walk upright, so therefore I'm going to hand you over to wicked people. No, they were doing wicked things, and therefore God handed them over to themselves. And again, the Bible just wants to tell us these stories so that we feel it, not just understand it, but so that we feel the depth of what was happening to them. And maybe there's some relation to us, at least in a broader cultural sense. So at that time, there was a certain Levite. He was a priest who served the people of God in some measure or other. He was living as a sojourner in the hills of Ephraim, which was not far from where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are located, at least in that general portion of Israel. He had a home in the city where he lived, and he had a life in the city where he lived, but he was not uh, native to the people who lived right there. He wasn't native to that particular tribe of Israel, and so they called a person like that a sojourner. He lived among us, but he's not of us. Sometimes in Elk River, I feel like a sojourner. I'm not from you. I didn't grow up hunting and fishing and all this stuff, and I'm glad to be here, but I'm a sojourner among you. And such was this Levite, this priest. Somewhere along the way, he took for himself a concubine. It's not a word we use very often, right? I probably haven't heard that word this week. You might think, what is a concubine? Is that the cousin of a porcupine? And it's not. Concubine was a... A woman with whom a man would make an arrangement, she was something less than a wife, but something more than a girlfriend or a prostitute or a slave. So there was some kind of official relationship that was somewhat short of marriage. We're not sure exactly how short of marriage. And for whatever reason, the Levite took this woman as a concubine rather than as a full wife. We don't know why. We just know that he did. He probably did not have a wife because she's never mentioned anywhere in the story. And given the particulars of the story, the Bible probably would have at least mentioned that. So here's the man, here's his concubine. And what we do know for sure is that somewhere along the way, she was unfaithful to him. She cheated on him. She had sex with another man. And whether she felt overwhelmed by guilt of, over her sin, 
whether she feared the reprisal of what might happen to her, whatever was happening in her heart, she decided that the best thing to do after she sinned was to flee. And so she took off and went back to her father's house, which was some hours away from where the Levite lived, and there she stayed for four full months. So imagine that the adultery had taken place in, say, January. Well, this Levite could have gone away, uh, gone after her straight away, but rather he waited all of January, all of February. He's waiting and praying, thinking what he should do. All of March, he waits and prays, thinks what he should do. All of April, waits and prays, thinks what he should do. And finally, by the end of April, beginning of May, he's decided what he's going to do. The Lord has stirred in his heart and given him wisdom. The, the emotions of it has settled down. And he's made a choice. He's going to go pursue her. He's going to speak kindly to her. And he's going to bring her back. In other words, he's going to forgive her. He's, he decided, for whatever reason, that he was going to be like the Lord and be kind to his wayward wife. That's what he decided. So, so far to this point in the story, we're talking about a story of redemption. So he goes to his, his father-in-law's house. He brings a servant, a couple donkeys, all the supplies that they need. He arrives there, and she obviously, upon the sight of him, saw that he was going to speak kindly or something because she didn't react, she didn't run away, she didn't fight with him, she didn't make excuses. The Bible just says she welcomed him into her father's house, which in their culture was a big deal. To welcome you into my house was to welcome you as a human being. It was to be reconciled to you in every way thinkable. And so she brought him into the house, and not only was she rejoicing, but the father-in-law was rejoicing. He was happy to see her, to see the Levite. He was happy to see that this man had come to redeem his daughter and to reconcile a very broken situation. And so he began to lavish uh, food and drink and all manner of blessing upon this man day after day after day. The Bible says initially that he stayed there for three days, just getting, getting blessing lavished upon him. Now in our culture, that probably makes some sense to us to, to, to some degree or another, but in their culture, this issue of hospitality was a really, really big thing. In their culture, to be hospitable to somebody was an obligation, but it was also a calling from the Lord. And so if you came to my home and I refused you into my home, this would be a very strong public cultural signal that I was not reconciled with you and I wanted nothing to do with you. However, if there was a reconciled relationship between us and I wanted to communicate how much I loved you and appreciated you and was one with you, I would lavish hospitality upon you. And that's how we're to understand the first eight or nine verses here of this story. Because after the first three days, the man tries to get up and leave. He's like, all right, time for us to go. Three days of blessing, off we go, right? And the father-in-law says, oh, no, no, just stay for breakfast. I'm going to treat you real well and we'll have a great breakfast and then you can go. And then comes lunch. He's like, well, you know, that was a long breakfast, We've been talking a long time. You're probably hungry. Let me feed you, and, and then you can stay a little bit longer, and so on and so on until the day had gone by, and the guy says, well, you might as well stay the night again. He's communicating hospitality. He's communicating blessing. He's communicating uh, reconciliation, and the same thing happens the next day, and the guy ends up staying another night, but then on the fifth day, the Levite finally said, you know, I just need to get going. I really appreciate your hospitality. I appreciate your welcoming me back into your home. I appreciate you as my father-in-law of sorts, um, helping us to reconcile this relationship, but it's time for us to go. And so even though the day was growing a little bit old, the man saddled up his donkeys, grabbed his servant, grabbed his concubine, and off they went to take the journey back home, how many ever hours that would have been. It actually took them about six miles to walk from where they were to Jerusalem. 
and they didn't actually go into the city of Jerusalem, which was called Jebus at that time, but I imagine in my mind's eye that they probably skirted the valley in which Jerusalem was. In those days, it would have been a lot smaller city than it is today, and probably they could look down and see Jebus, and the, the, the servant was tired, and so he wanted to stop for the night. It had already been a long day. Already a six-mile walk is a long walk when you're bringing so much stuff with you, and so he wanted to stop, but this man said, no, we can't do that, and here's the reason why. Those people down there are not in the hands of Israel yet, and the city of Jerusalem is controlled by foreigners, and we don't want to go where the foreigners are. And I think the reason he was saying that is because he was afraid for his life. He didn't want, as a foreigner, to go among these foreign people and, and, and uh, risk being attacked and perhaps being killed at night. He was trying to protect his concubine and his servant and his possessions. And so he said, I know we're all tired. I know it's another four or five miles to Ramah or Gibeah, but let's just keep pressing on and pray for the grace of God. We'll go to where our people are. And the implication is we'll be safe there. We'll be welcomed there. We'll be given hospitality there. We'll be blessed there. The peace of God, the joy of God will belong to us there, right? If we give ourselves to these foreign people, who knows what will happen? But the people of God will certainly treat us well. And so they pressed on and they finally came to Gabeah. The Bible says just when the sun went down, which I take as a significant signal. That's not a small thing. The Bible is always paying attention to light and dark. And we would do well to pay attention to that as well. So the day had gone and the man and his entourage went into the city square, which is what you would do in those days. They did have kinds of hotels in those days in in larger cities, but they were basically brothels. And so if you wanted to protect holiness and protect your relationship and all that stuff, you wouldn't go there. So this man didn't want to go to that kind of place. Rather, he just went to the open city square, and that was normal. If you went there, what people were supposed to do is see that a stranger was in town, and they were supposed to take you in for the glory of God and the blessing of your soul. But nobody would take him in. And he got to thinking that the reason was that the people might be poor there, and they couldn't take care of him. And so finally, they wait and wait and wait. The sun has gone down below the horizon. It's probably not completely dark, but it's getting there. He's starting to be concerned about what to do. I imagine that he was just praying and asking the Lord for help. And pretty soon, here comes this old man walking down the road who was also a sojourner in that town. He had a home there. He had a life there. He had been working out in the field all day, and now he's coming home probably after a 12, 14-hour day. He's tired, but he sees these strangers in the city square, and he can't, like the rest of the city, just let this happen. His heart is too soft to the Lord and to other people. And so he goes up to the priest and says, who are you? And to make a short story even shorter, they get to talking, and the old man brings them home, and he blesses them. He treats them very well. He feeds them. He gives them drink, and they have a wonderful time together. The Bible says, beginning in verse 22, that while they were eating and drinking and enjoying the Lord and one another, that the men of that city, who the Bible calls worthless people, surrounded the old man's house and began to violently beat on the door. Next week we're going to see in chapter 20 that these weren't just men who lived in this city. These were actually the leaders of the city of Gibeah. This was the mayor and the city council. These were the leaders. These were the people who were supposed to set the pace for the atmosphere in their city. These were the people who were supposed to set the aroma of the glory of God, the grace of God, the blessing of God, the shalom of God, the joy of God in that place. They were supposed to be sons of God, but instead they became sons of worthlessness. Now in the ESV it says that they were worthless men, and I totally understand why they translate it that way. But in the Hebrew, it says here literally that they're sons of worthlessness. And in this case, I think that's very important. And I wish that they would have translated it literally. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, the Bible says that Israel, the people of Israel, 
We're supposed to be sons of God. And that was not just some kind of nebulous thing to say in those days. What that meant was that the people of Israel were supposed to take on the character of their father and display the character of their father in the world. And what is God like? God is holy and pure and just and righteous and good, isn't he? He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He enfolds the stranger and gives mercy to the sinner. He's a great God. He's a gracious God. His people were supposed to be the light of the world, a city set on a hill, if you will. They were supposed to not just be blessed by God, but they were supposed to be a blessing for the nation. So the very least you would expect is that they would be a blessing for each other. But these men who were supposed to be sons of God, the Bible says, became sons of worthlessness. That's no throwaway line. They became sons of Satan, beloved. They became sons of hardness of heart, sons of worthlessness, sons of personal pleasure. I'll use you to get what I want for me kind of pleasure. Their hearts had turned away from God and their hearts had hardened toward God and everything that God was about. And so can you imagine the leaders of the city come and surround your house and begin violently banging on the door and demanding that the visitor in your house come back out and let you do with them what you want to do with them. This was an unbelievable thing. So the old man actually risks his life. By the way, everybody in the house was clear. We're going to see this in chapter 20. They knew, everybody in the house knew that the intention of these men was to kill this Levite, to kill this priest. I doubt that they knew he was a Levite, but one way or the other, they intended to kill him. Everybody in the house knew what their intentions were. It was not good. These are the leaders of the city. The old man risks his life. He goes outside and he says this in verse 23. No, my brothers, my brothers, he says, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, I'm giving him hospitality. I'm blessing him for the glory of God and in the name of God. So do not do this vile thing to him. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you and do with them whatever seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Now, I spent a lot of time thinking about this moment of the story, and if you're anything like me, you're a little bit disappointed in this old man. Maybe you're a little bit shocked by his solution to the problem here. As people who are reading this story many centuries after the fact, we want him to be a hero, at least I do. I want this man to be brave. I want this man to be one of two things. I want him to either be like David and stand up to this pack of Goliaths in the name of God and be brave and defeat an entire mob of people for the glory of God and by the power of God. I want him to do that. I want him to be brave. I want him to fight. I want him to be a real man. Or I want him to lay his life down and die rather than letting things like this happen to people who are inside of his house. I wish that he would have done that. And I'm not here to excuse him, but I do want to say that as I let my heart stir on this part of the story, I don't want necessarily to be too quick to judge him because I wasn't inside of his shoes. I did not feel the terror that he felt that night. The more I thought about this, I remembered something that happened to me and my family when I was eight years old. This, by the way, as I tell you this story, this isn't the kind of thing that happened to us ever before or after. But this little scene helped me to connect with these people from heart to heart at least. So I'm eight years old. My parents and I had gone away for the weekend and we left at home my 18-year-old brother. And we come back home on a Sunday evening. I still remember it as crystal clear. I remember the whole thing. I remember driving up, going into the house. I remember my brother sitting us down at the dining room table saying, Mom, Dad, I got something I have to tell you. 
So while you were gone, I, I threw a party, and a lot of my friends came, and he actually listed a bunch of them off, and we knew them all. Well, most of them. And while they were there partying, out in the front yard, doing their thing, drinking beer, whatever they were doing, another group of guys from our neighborhood in Los Angeles came by the house and saw them there, and, and bottom line, started a bunch of trouble, and next thing you know, there's a full-on brawl in our front yard between my brother and, and his friends and these guys and their friends. And my brother assures us that the fight, you know, went however it went. They talked after the fight was over. Everything's settled. Everything's over. It's, it's, it's done with, but I just wanted you to know that this happened. So I'm an eight-year-old kid. I basically just admired my brother beyond what I could describe to you. So he said it was over. I believed him. You know, my brother said it. That settles it. I believe it, you know. it's kind of how it was for me. A couple days later, though, these guys in the middle of the night come to our house, and I hear, I can still remember hearing it. My bedroom was right here. My brother would park his truck right here next to my bedroom, and these guys came in the middle of the night and smashed out hit the windows out of his truck. I still remember the sound of it to this day. A couple days after that, we had family down from Washington State, and me and my cousin were having to sleep on the floor of the living room to make room for everybody to stay there. And in the middle of the night, these guys came and threw these huge rocks right through the front windows of our house, busted out every window in front of our house about 2 or 3 in the morning. And one of those rocks landed right next to my cousin's head. I just remember being filled with fear. I'm 8 years old, scared to death. This kind of thing had never happened to us before, so I didn't know what to do. But it got even worse. One night, I don't remember how much time had passed by here. It wasn't more than a couple days, but my brothers and, and a bunch of their friends had come over to basically powwow with my youngest brother and figure out what to do about this. And so we're all there, and I don't remember exactly what time it is, but I remember that the sun also was kind of setting because there was lights on in the living room, and I can still kind of picture the scene in my mind. And suddenly I see this van drive up in front of our house, and a bunch of guys pour out of the van. They've got bats, they've got knives, they've got chains, and they literally surround our house and start yelling for my brother to come out or they're going to do this and that. I remember my brothers telling us kids to get down on the floor and stay still. One of my brothers called the cops. In the beginning, the LAPD did not want to come out to the house because they said there was no crime that had been committed yet. So my mother was a businesswoman, a very nice woman. Kim can testify, but she could also cuss like a sailor. So she grabs the phone and tells the LAPD dispatcher a few choice things. And bottom line is, the cops show up to our house. They chase these guys away. They didn't arrest anybody, but they got them to go away. We never heard from these guys again. But I always remember. In fact, as I was thinking through that story this week, I can feel the terror still in my heart. I still feel scared when I think about that story. And I thank God in a sense that that happened to us because it helped me to connect with these people and to not be too quick to, to judge them for the decisions that they made that night. I think that what this old guy did was horrible, but I wasn't in his shoes. And I just want to encourage you to at least have some compassion on him that no matter what he did, um, maybe you wouldn't act as well as you wish you would if you were in his shoes. And so I'm not going to talk about any details at this point since there are kids around, but he went into the house, he grabbed the concubine, he sent her out. They did with her what they wanted to do, and in the morning it says that they let her go. The Hebrew is a lot stronger here. The Hebrew language here actually says they threw her away like she was a piece of trash. They did what they wanted, they just threw her away. She somehow makes it to the house, she falls at the front door right on the threshold and lays there motionless. The Levite decides that he's got to get up and get ready and get out of town before he meets his demise as well. And so it's early in the morning, he packs up, he opens the door, and there's his uh, beloved concubine on the ground. She's unresponsive, so he puts her on his donkey and begins the long journey home. We don't know exactly where he lived, 
But if you look where Gabeah is and where he likely lived, he had at least an hour walk, but it could have been a three, four hour walk from where he was. And so the Bible kind of goes very quickly from that part of the story to the end of the story. But I just want us to slow down for a second and realize and be with the road on this man as he had to walk down the road with his concubine and the scene was not pretty. She was not in good shape. So moment by moment, he's having to be confronted with what had just happened to her and the horror of the last 12 hours of his life. Absolute horror. Uh, Absolute terror had descended upon him. And he had all these hours of walking to think about what had happened at his father-in-law's house, on the journey, that fateful decision he made about not going to Jerusalem, going to Gabeah, everything that happened. He had to replay it, replay it, replay it, and replay it. And the reason that I bring this up is because that the way that the story ends and what this Levite ended up doing, to us it seems so gruesome, it seems unthinkable. I don't think that I could ever bring myself to do what he did, but I must admit to you that as I thought about what he did, I I think that I've come to understand why he did what he did. I imagined him walking down that road and, and replaying the story in his mind over and over again. At some point, the horror of what had happened turned to the need for justice in the future. At some point, he said, all right, it is what it is. Now, what is going to be? What shall happen because of this? What kind of justice shall I get? Shall I send a letter to the leaders of Israel? If I do that, they may not understand the force of what happened here. They may read it like any other case and just dismiss it and let it go and basically wash it under the bridge and and nothing will happen. How can I communicate to them the horror of what took place on that night? You may or may not like or condone what he did, but I think this Levite did what he did, and he sent the packages that he sent in order to communicate to the leaders of Israel from the very north of the land to the very south, from Dan to Beersheba, to communicate to them all the horror of what happened in Gabeah. He wanted them to see it, feel it, smell it, know it. This was unbelievable. And apparently his plan worked. Because the Bible says at the end of chapter 19 that when the leaders of Israel opened up the packages and saw what was there, they were horrified and said, has anything like this ever happened in Israel? And they came to this conclusion. The Bible puts these words in the leaders of the mouth of Israel from all over the land, the same words. Consider this, take counsel, and speak. I thought a lot about that. And there's some things in chapter 20 that make me think that with these packages, the man actually sent some kind of communication that briefly told the story to the leaders and called them to come to a city called Mizpah on a certain day at a certain time. Because in chapter 20, all the leaders of Israel show up in the same place at the same time and they bring 400,000 people with them. So somehow or other, they knew what had transpired and they knew that this man was calling for a judgment. He was not just telling them a story. He was saying, you must act. I believe that those were his words. I'm asking you to consider it, take counsel, and speak. I want a verdict. I want justice. I want something to happen here. Now, I'm going to actually pause the story right there for this week, and I'm going to encourage you, if you have not already read ahead, I want to encourage you not to read ahead yet. I want to encourage you to take a day or two and think about the story to this point. What if you had received that letter? What if you were called to, to, to consider what had happened, to take counsel with other people, and then to pronounce a judgment? What would godly justice look like to you? What would godly justice be in this situation? 
What would your wisdom be? What would your counsel be? And I encourage you to think about that. And then after you're done thinking about it, read chapter 20 and 21 and see what the Lord did. See what the people of Israel did. See if you agree. And we'll talk about that in some detail next week. For now, what I want to do is try to bridge the gap from their world to our world's. And my main goal right now is to help us understand that our culture is not so much different from the culture of Israel. I don't know how this story and this part of Judges strikes you, but as far as just a gut reaction is for me, I tend to want to take this story and distance myself and my culture away from it. It feels primitive. It feels savage. It feels barbaric. It feels very different from us. Maybe not so different from Pakistan or Afghanistan or somewhere in the world like that but very different from us. I think we tend to think that we're more sophisticated, we're more developed, we're more advanced, we're more civilized. We're a first world culture, not a third world culture. This kind of stuff does not happen among us. I'll tell you, with the, I've been reading three commentaries for my time in Judges, and every one of them had a significant section where they were basically apologizing for this story and trying to make it acceptable to, to the modern American palate because I think it's just pfft, like disgusting to us. We can't relate to it. And I just want to suggest to you for a little while here this morning that we as a people are not so different from the people in this story. I'll grant you that we differ in the details, but what I want to help us see here in the next few minutes is that our culture, in a broad sense, is as vile as the culture in the Bible and may even be more vile than the, than, the, than the culture of the Bible here at this time. Please remember with me that Judges 19 is not the story of everybody in Israel. This is a story of one city in Israel and one group of people in Israel who did a very vile thing. And we already see in chapter 19, we will see in chapters 20 and 21, that the rest of Israel was outraged by what happened. So don't get the idea that in this culture, everybody was just fine with what happened here. They weren't fine with it. And, and I see a, a parallel to our culture as well, because I don't think, when I say that our culture is just as vile as theirs, I don't mean that every single person is, or that every single neighborhood is, or every single city. I'm just saying, when you back up and get some perspective and look at America as a whole, there is a lot of stuff happening in our country right now that I think makes us a lot worse than the people we're looking at today. And it would be good for us not to distance our hearts from that fact. Our culture exploits and uses women like never before in the history of the world. And I don't have the time to argue that point, but if I did, I think that I could prove to you that that's not an overstatement. And since there are kids with us today, I'm not going to talk about any details, but I kind of wish to God that we could. I wish today we could have an adults-only service, because I think in 10 minutes, I could pretty much persuade you that we're much more vile than the nation of Israel was at that time, at least when you take us as a culture as a whole. The United States, we're supposed to be the city on the hill, right? The light of the gospel to the nations. We are the number one purveyor of pornography in the sex industry all around the world, including the sex trade. We might not have it happening as much here as in, say, Thailand, but we're funding a lot of it, and we're a lot of the demand over there. I saw a study this week that broke my heart. It was about pornography and the use of pornography. In this particular study, I can't remember the sample size, but I remember the statistic that said that in their sample, over 90% of the men in that sample admitted to having viewed pornography in the last few months. And I fear that that's a true stat. 
Beyond the imaginary usage of women, there are many sad facts about our culture that are uncomfortable but nevertheless true. And the truth is that the story of Judges 19 is repeated so often in our culture that all these reality crime shows can't keep up with it. They tell in so many stories day after day after day after day because there's just that many stories to tell. There is a a lot of violence in our culture, a lot of deadly violence. I spent a little bit of time with a a cop from Grand Rapids this week. He's a believer and uh, a burgeoning elder in our sister church over in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I got to sit with him for a couple hours, just asked him about his life. And I just couldn't believe the kinds of things that this guy deals with day in and day out, 90% of which are domestic situations. He told me that domestic calls are the most dangerous calls for any cop anywhere in this country because our homes, at least in part, I'm not saying it's everybody, I'm just saying in part there's a lot of violence happening in our homes and I just don't want us to think that we're not like these people back then because taken as a whole, we are. You want to talk about gangs of people marauding around a city and wreaking havoc? We got plenty of that. I have a friend that ministers in East St. Paul, Dwayne Gibbs is his name, He told me, he said, Charlie, when the sun sets on my neighborhood, it becomes a war zone. A war zone. And he was concerned that we were spending so much money to send people overseas, and we're just letting East St. Paul go to hell. His heart's broken over that. Who of us would pack our families up and move to northeast Minneapolis or to Frogtown or to Eastside St. Paul or to really so many places all over this country where the inner cities are just rife with gangs of young men who are going from place to place and marauding. And I'm just saying, when I step back and I look at why all of that is happening, I see that we're a lot like Israel. We were sent to this land to be a city on a hill and to be a light for Christ to the nations of the world and to send missionaries to every corner so that people would know the Lord our God. And to some extent we played our role, but slowly but surely we have slipped away from God and we have become a vile nation. And I don't mean to sound like a crotchety old Baptist preacher or something like that, but I just got to tell you that I fear that our culture has gone too far and beyond the point of no return. If I didn't have hope in Christ, I would have no hope for this country at all. I must be honest with you about that. I have a degree in sociology. I have studied social problems. I've written long papers about these things. I know that issues like what I'm bringing up today are complex. But when I look at the situation, I look at Israel, I look at America, I must admit that I think that the basic diagnosis of why we are where we are is the same. Namely, we have walked away from the Lord. And when you walk away from the will and ways of the Lord, there is no other option but chaos in your life, your family, your culture, period. I remember when I was in college, I heard Ronald Reagan say, like on TV or something, I didn't see him live, but I heard Ronald Reagan say that if every American obeyed the Ten Commandments, we would have no social problems. And at first, I thought that was an overstatement. I kind of dismissed the thought. Nice thought, but not very realistic. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I kept thinking it through. And the more I thought it through, the more I realized he is dead right. He is dead right. Think about this. If every American obeyed the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, and loved God more than anything in their life, and put him first, and got rid of everything in their life that got between them and God. They had a real, serious, sincere, authentic, loving relationship with God. Think about how much crime that would solve. Think about how many problems at so many levels that would solve just right there. But then let's get to the next six commandments. If everybody in America honored their father and mother, how many problems would be wiped off the table, both social and personal? If everybody in America would obey the command not to commit adultery, the entire sex trade would be gone in an instant. And how many crimes would evaporate? 
If every person in America would obey the command, do not steal, do not covet what is your neighbor's, how much crime would be wiped off the table? And we could go down through every single commandment, beloved, and by the time you get to the 10th commandment, you look at the table and realize there's no crime possibilities left on the table. 10 simple rules. Life in God is so simple. It's our sin that makes it complicated. And so again, I really don't want to be a simplistic or crotchety preacher, but when I'm looking at America, I just think the diagnosis is what it was for Israel. We have walked away from the Lord. If the problem is spiritual, then the solution is also spiritual, right? What I've been praying for all week long is that God would give us clarity of insight about the heart of the problem in our culture and the heart of the solution for our culture. There are lots of variabilities here. I don't want to just be super simplistic and say there's only one solution, but I will say there's one main solution with lots of implications. And the main solution is to turn back to the Lord our God and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord, to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength all the days of our lives. We have to do this by his grace and by his power because our hearts are twisted, they're messed up, and we can't obey even 10 simple rules that God God has given to us, but Jesus is merciful and gracious, so willing to forgive our sin and transform us from the inside out. He's so willing to look over, in a sense, by the cross, our love for other things and replace it with a love for him that consumes our lives, little by little, day by day, but he's willing to do it. And if we will just turn to him, beloved, the solution will begin. It may be too late for America. But I told the Lord this week, Lord, until you take my life or command me like like you did Jeremiah. He told Jeremiah at one point, do not pray for Israel anymore. I will not listen to you. Until I hear a command like that from the Lord or until he takes my life, beloved, I have made a firm commitment that I'm going to do three things and I invite you into these things. They're not new, but I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want to call you to care about our culture, to see it with God's eyes and to fight with all your might that a revival might come upon our land and believe that God could do it. If you don't believe God could do it, just read a little history. God has done miraculous things in the past. He might do a miraculous thing for us. So I think we have to begin, first of all, by looking in the mirror, not looking outside of ourselves. I think it's very tempting for Christians to, to, to pay attention to the specks in other people's eyes and ignore the logs in our own eyes. It's easier for us to wall ourselves in and to become arrogant toward outsiders, but they are not our enemy, beloved. Satan and his kingdom is our enemy, and so we don't fight against flesh and blood. The first thing we have to do is look in the mirror and seek holiness, beloved. We have to seek a pure love for Jesus. And I've been trying to say all the way through Judges that the only way to get that is to turn to the Lord. All we can do is turn to him and surrender to him and let him work his will and way in us because we don't have the power to love him as we ought. But if we will simply turn day by day and surrender, he will help us. He will help. Help us. So number one, seek holiness. Get rid of the sin and the idolatry in your own life. It's amazing how much compassion that process will give you for other people. Second thing is we have to pursue life with one another because God sent us on mission together. He sent us on the mission together to fight for holiness and then to spread the gospel into the world. We were never designed to do this alone. And some of you are struggling to overcome sin because you're trying to do it by yourself and Jesus is trying to patiently teach you you were not designed to do it by yourself. 
So I said a couple weeks ago, if you will just come out and say, I'm struggling with this sin, I have this idol in your life, what's going to happen to you in this church is we're going to say, welcome to the club. Let's pray for each other. Let's fight for each other. Let's lock arms together and seek holiness and seek love for Jesus. So, beloved, we need each other with a capital N, capital E, capital E, capital D. We need one another in Christ to pursue holiness and to fight for revival in this land. And then finally, we have to be a light in this world. So pursue holiness, pursue one another, and seek to actively be a light in this world. There's so many different ways you could do that, but I just want to say what I said to you some months ago. Find your thing and do your thing. I don't know what your thing is, but be a light. You know, when I walked uh, into the room this morning, somebody turned those lights on, and now the lights are just shining. They're not having to try to shine. They're just shining, right? And when you get near to the glory of Jesus Christ, he shines in your heart, and you can't help but shining wherever you go. Yesterday, I had some car problems right outside of Madison, Wisconsin, and here comes the tow truck driver, and I just love it because I know the question is coming, and, and, and in five minutes, the guy says to me, so what do you do? I have some pastor friends that say, well, I work with heat and light, which is a nice way to say it. But I just like to come out and just say, well, I'm a pastor. Because he's like, oh. He's like, oh. He literally like, and then he, he paused for about 30 seconds. He said, well, I, best, I guess I better just tell you my clean jokes. <laughs> and I said, yeah, so that'd be great. So bottom line is, I get to share the gospel with this guy. Ken is his name. He's a friend of mine now. I got to share Jesus with this guy. Why? Because I was trying not so much. I just had listened, I, from Grand Rapids, Michigan to that point, I had listened on my iPod to, to Exodus, Leviticus, and almost all of Deuteronomy, and believe it or not, I just felt glowing with love for Jesus Christ. I just did. So there I am in this tow truck with this guy. What else am I going to do but shine? I didn't have to try. Just Jesus was in me, so I shined. And that's all I'm saying, beloved. I'm not saying you have to add a bunch of work to your life. I'm just saying pray for holiness. Pray for love for your brothers and sisters. And then plead for your family, your neighborhood, your city, your nation. Maybe God would do something great. Maybe he would do something wild beyond our expectations. I don't know. It's all a little too much for me. I I certainly can't save America, but I know the one who can. And so I want to encourage you, beloved, to listen to this story. Let God come near and pierce your heart with the story from Judges 19, but let it drive us to our knees to seek the the Father of lights, the Father of holiness, that he might do great things in our land. A wholehearted return to the Lord would cause widespread revival in America, and that's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm pleading for. That's what I'm working for in my neighborhood, and I pray that you would join. Would you please stand with me, and let me just pray a quick prayer. Our Father, I thank you so much for the sometimes hard to hear but good and piercing word of God. I thank you that you're the God who will wound us in order to heal us. And I pray that you would speak to us now as we sing. I pray that you would stir in us by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would yourself inspire the prayers that we will pray here in a few minutes, Lord. Please uh, teach us how to pray and please hear our prayers for the glory of your name and the good of our country. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.